Welcome to this episode of Heartland Podcast. In front of a live audience during this summer's Heartland, the two lawyers, Laura Nairada and Stephen Drissen, met with the director of the film festival, Copenhagen Ducks, Tina Fischer, at Heartland's talk stage for a conversation about the true crime genre. Laura Nairada and Stephen Drissen are two of the defense lawyers from the Emmy-winning true crime series, Making a Murderer. In the series, they both represent the convicted Brendan Dassey. Attorney and law professor Stephen Drissen is one of the founders of the Center of Wrongful Convictions of Youth at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law in Chicago, where Laura Nairada, also law professor, is the director. Tina Fischer founded Copenhagen Ducks in 2003, and today the festival has become one of the world's leading and most recognized documentary film festivals. The conversation is moderated by the TV expert and former program manager at TV2, Kjell Reinicke. The participants met on stage for a conversation with the headline, What Happens When Reality Becomes True Crime? During the conversation, they discuss how media such as TV shows, documentaries and social media can influence legitimation and justice. Enjoy. All right, and thank you for uh, coming. <laughs> it's, uh, it's we've been we're going to talk a little bit about uh, true crime. We're going to talk about a specific specific show, making a murderer, and but we're also going to talk about you know the overall thing about what is happening in society, what's going on with all these shows uh, and stuff like that. So, so just to define true crime, what what is what, how would you define that? Well, I mean, I could give you uh, the very successful version, which is it is the new guy or girl in class, the popular guy and girl. It's the sub-genre within documentary fiction and journalism that has revolutionized the entire notion of how we deal with the real world. Uh, it's the most listened to, downloaded, streamed news of genre But uh, if we just cut the glimmer and glitter for a while and just say, okay, cut to the bone, what is true crime? Then it's basically... It's stories about you and me, it's real people, it's not characters, and it's mostly people who have gone through what we call human tragedies. So it's murder stories, it's criminals, it's structural criminality, and sometimes, as in making a murderer, it's also, let's say, a genre that moves beyond the criminal case and the individuals to look at how law is governed, how justice is practiced, but it happens quite rarely. Yeah, and, and what, I mean, you could say one more thing is that uh, um, because of the change of TV, uh, streaming services have come in, the, the biggest one is Netflix, and, and one of the defining uh, moments of that is that they can actually do longer programs. Mm. Uh, and if you look back at, um, at, at true crimes for that, uh, you would actually find Making a Murder as being the most watched true crime show ever, uh, because you have both in the U.S., it's big, and, and also in uh, some, some of the other... And, yeah, maybe that is, that there is a point in saying that true crime is not a new genre. I mean, so true crime has existed as long as crime has existed. Yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, we've been looking at beheading, popping beheadings of people, or we've been looking into extra blood and BT every morning, just checking who's now murdered. So, I mean, true crime has been there forever, but the new thing about true crime, or let's say the true crime... 2.0 is that podcast 
and streaming services has made it possible to follow court cases and criminal histories for ages and I mean for years and years. I don't know, is it four years in the making or I don't know. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, there's true crime, right? There's true crime, which is what we're here to talk about today. But I like to think of making a murderer as false crime, right? I mean, there's the crimes that happened and, and certainly there's a crime that happened here, but there's the times when the system gets it right and the time when the system doesn't get it right. And I think those are the stories that just leap off the screen and grip people around the world. You know, I mean, when people saw what happened to Brendan Dassey in Making a Murder, it, it's, it's a story that, you know, we haven't forgotten for 11 years, and, and I don't think people will soon forget it themselves either. Hmm. The thing that you mentioned that strikes me is that this is the first time that a case has played out over a canvas as large as a 10-hour show. Right. And we got to see a preview of the show. I was in Washington, D.C. two days before everyone else saw the show. I was at a conference. I went home. I clicked on a special link. I typed in a special password at 7 o'clock at night, and I clicked on the first episode. Now, I knew I was in episode 10, so I had a debate. Do I go to episode 10, or do I start at the beginning? <laughs> and I started at the beginning, and 7 o'clock the next morning, I had finished the whole series. I was the first binge watcher of Making All right. a Murderer. <laughs> All right. Let, let's, let's just talk a little bit about uh, Making a Murderer, and let's see, just for people who, are, who haven't seen it, just a little a resume of what it is. So we're going to see the first clip. Clip number four is going to be just telling the, the oral story. So this is the first promo that came out uh, a couple of years ago from, from Netflix. Let's see the first clip. The people that were close to Steve knew he was always happy, happy, happy. Always wanted to make other people laugh. <laughs> they didn't dress like everybody else. They didn't have education like other people. The Avery family didn't fit into the community. Stevie did do a lot of stupid things, but he always owned up to everything he did wrong. I've been uh, a good life until all the trouble started. Penny Bernstein was everything that Stephen wasn't. So just think of the two of them side by side. There was no real investigation done by the sheriff's department. The sheriff told the DA not to screw this case up. He wanted Avery convicted of this crime. There isn't one iota of physical evidence in this case that connects Stephen Avery to it. In fact, the sheriff was told by the police, you have the wrong guy. Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. They're not handing that kind of money over to Steve Avery. I did tell him, be careful. They are not even close to being finished with you. Do we have a body or anything yet? I don't believe so. We have Stephen Avery in custody, though. Are you kidding me? The disappearance of Teresa Halbach remains a mystery. Mr. Avery's blood is found inside of Teresa Halbach's vehicle. Steve, everybody's listening. What do you want to say today? I'm listening. 
If convicted, Steve Avery will spend the rest of his life in prison. When we found a key, that key was scrubbed and his DNA was placed on it. This is really strange. What's going on here? Hallbox last stop Monday was at Stephen Avery's home. If he did this, maybe it was good he was in prison all that time. Everything I've heard him say hasn't been the truth. It was extraordinarily disturbing. We went through this 20 years ago, and we're going through it now again. In this criminal justice system, good luck. You are probably the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. The truth always comes out. Yeah. So what we, what, what we didn't see here is that he has a nephew. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So yes, that's right. Stephen Avery has a nephew, right? Um, this is a case that happened in Wisconsin in 2005, the disappearance of this young woman, Teresa Hallbach. And Stephen Avery, as you saw, was accused of her rape and murder. Um, he was arrested. He was charged with her murder after having been exonerated for another rape. And a few months after his arrest, police began questioning Stephen Avery's nephew, right? The 16-year-old intellectually disabled boy named Brendan Dassey. Brendan lived next door to Stephen Avery. He had been with Stephen briefly the night that Teresa Halbach had disappeared. And police questioned him looking for answers about Stephen Avery and about this case. They took this 16-year-old intellectually disabled boy out of his school. They questioned him four times over 48 hours without a parent present, without a lawyer present. And all captured on videotape, they end up feeding him a confession to helping his uncle rape and murder Teresa Halbach, a confession that he adopts and sort of agrees to repeat and does repeat on videotape, expecting that he's going to go back to school afterwards for having done such a good job to please the police. So he was charged based on that confession. He was convicted, sentenced to life in prison. And Steve and I have been representing him ever since. Yeah. Should we just, Steve, before you say anything, should, should we just see a little clip of that uh, police Please. tape and then we, you can talk about what, what we're, uh, how, how you guys work with, with that kind of thing. So let's see uh, clip number five. All right, I'm just going to come up and ask you who shot her in the head. He did. Why didn't you tell us that? I couldn't think of it. Now you remember it? Tell us about that then. Daddy shot her with his 22. You were there though? Yeah. Where did this happen? Outside. Outside? Before? Tell me when it happened. When we sprung outside to throw her in the fire. Okay. So let's back up. Brendan, we're in the bedroom yet, okay? Where do you take her then? Take her outside on the side of the garage and shoot her. You take her outside of the garage and shoot her? On the side of it, yeah. Was she ever in the garage? 
we know that something's happening in that garage and in that car. We know that. You need to tell us about that so we know you're telling us the truth. I'm not going to tell you what to say. You need to tell us. Tell us where she was shot. And the head. No, I mean where? In the garage, oh. outside, in the house. In the garage. Okay. After obtaining. All right. What are we looking at here? We're looking at a dramatic clip from Brendan's interrogation. And the clip begins with probably the most egregious example of fact-feeding by the detectives. When they went into this interrogation, there was one very important undisclosed fact that had never been released to the public, and that is that Teresa Halbach had been shot in the head. So if they could get Brendan to say that on his own, that would be independent corroboration of his confession, and it would make them confident that he was guilty. But they couldn't do it. So they start this interrogation, this clip, by saying, all right, I'm just going to come out and say it. Who shot her in the head? And to me, that is the beginning of a pattern of fact-feeding that results in a confession that is more parts police than it is Brendan Dassey. No, that's right. I mean, and so, you know, the really interesting question is, you know, why would someone do this, right? Why would anyone sit in an interrogation room and repeat back facts that somebody is telling you to say, implicating yourself in a murder? And what's interesting is that, you know, Brendan's case, Brendan is just one of hundreds of people who are known to have falsely confessed, and there's probably thousands more that we don't yet know about. All of these interrogations work the same way, right? Why did Brendan agree to repeat this back? Well, it's because of the way he was questioned earlier during this interrogation. The police said to him that he would be facing murder charges if he didn't fill in the blanks for them. But if he agreed to fill in the blanks with information that they fed him, then he'd be all right. Everything would be okay. You know, he'd have nothing to worry about. And that's what you see over and over and over again in these false confession cases. It's exactly what you see with Brendan. So, so you guys, you know, been working with him for 11 years, uh, trying to find him. Uh, wait, can you remember the first time you saw that thing? What, what were you thinking the first time you saw that? I mean, I guess you've seen, seen it so many times now. The first time I saw it, um, I was thrown by all of the fact-feeding. I was thrown by... Brendan saying on tape after confessing to the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach, asking the detectives, can I go back to my sixth period class? Um, And then saying later, you know, when am I going back to school? Those were the moments that that I, I thought about and I wanted to dig deeper. And then I came to my class two days later and sitting to my left was Laura Nyrider. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, at this time, I was a law student, right? I didn't know anything about wrongful convictions or false confessions. This is 11 years ago. Steve was my professor. He had just gotten, you know, Brendan's case, gotten involved with Brendan's case. And he showed me, actually, that same clip that you just played, right? Who shot her in the head? Um, where Brendan repeats that back. And when I saw that, my heart broke. 
right? I had the same reaction that everybody in the world had so many years later when they watched Making a Murderer. Like, how could this be true? What can we do? I, I knew we had to do something about it. So that was it for me. You know, I came back and started working with Steve on Brendan's case and other cases just like it, which is what we've been doing for 11 years. All right. That's nice. Let, we, we're going to talk about more true crime, not only only this show, so, so yes, but 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 just for the for the sake of, of of a lot of people here, what what is the uh, what is the uh, status of all this now? I mean, I mean, it, it's it's uh, the season two ends with him being yeah, a little uh, bit of a downer, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Season two ends. We came, as those of you who have seen it know, we came within about 12 hours of getting Brendan Dassey out of prison after he'd served more than 10 years. You know, we've been fighting for him through the state court system, through the federal court system, and we came very, very close um, to getting him out before his release was blocked by a federal court in Chicago. Um, we tried to take the case up to the U.S. Supreme Court, didn't work, and that's where season two ends, on a bit of a down note. But you know what? I mean, Steve and I have been doing this for years, right? Our center has exonerated more than 50 individuals. So we know that sometimes you have to keep on trying, keep on pushing. It can take 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. That's exactly what's going to happen for Brendan Dassey. There are plenty of options left for him. That's right. And we have been and will continue to represent until we can bring him home. I, that's nice. We, We're going to shift a little bit and talk about a more the overall thing about you know you being lawyers in a, in in on TV being recognized. You just said that when you when you're flying somewhere, people come up to you and say, "You're we like your new uh, hair." Yeah, which is <laughs> I get a lot of normally, comments yeah, on my hair. <laughs> exactly, which is uh, which is nice uh, hair. Well, thank but, you. Uh, but thank it's you. Uh, I, but I'm just saying that it, it might, there might not be that many lawyers who get stopped. I mean, that might normally be a pop stars, a movie star, stuff like that. Well, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's very weird, right? Even to have those words in the same sentence. I yeah. mean, this is the thing, right? We've been representing Brendan for so long, and when we got involved in the case, we had no idea that anybody wanted to make a film about it, let alone Netflix. I don't think Netflix was invented when we got involved in Brendan's case and when they began filming. Um, so this has just exploded beyond our wildest expectations, you know, right. completely. I mean, we go around the world having the opportunity to speak not only about Brendan's case and to bring Brendan as best we can to people who saw his story, want to hear more, feel like they know him, care about him, but to talk about the issues that have, you know, shaped our entire careers, shaped our involvement in this case, that we're very passionate about. Um, it's, it's amazing uh, what's can I, happened. Can I ask, I'm, I'm not so yeah, sure, sure, can I ask you, if you had known what the attention of Netflix and the series would create for the case or against the case, would you have agreed to have Netflix on board that process? If you had had the choice? We actually never had the choice, right? When we got into the courtroom and into the case in 2007, these two young filmmakers had already packed up their bags, moved to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, got permission to be in the courtroom, and had already filmed, you know, Stephen Avery's trial and Brendan Dassey's trial. So they were there when we got there. Yeah. We didn't have a choice. They had been given permission. Um, but if we did have a choice, of course I would have 
stayed involved in this case because it's Brendan who was our client and he deserves people like Laura Nyrider and I to fight for him. Well, I can just, uh, we can just uh, show a clip from uh, 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 one of the biggest news shows, uh, Nightline, ABC uh, Nightline, which is covering uh, the story. And just wanted to show you because that's, it's not that many stories that they go into in that way. So, so in that way, and, and you're part of that. And we're just going to see a little bit of, of a clip there, but it just shows you that the magnitude that you were also talking about, when, when things go, you know, when, when lawyers also go into being more than just a regular lawyer. Let's just see the clip. Uh, it's uh, clip number... Uh, let's just see what it is. It's, it's clip number two. A real-life plot twist. A federal judge overturns the conviction of Brendan Dassey, subject of the popular Netflix documentary series, Making a Murderer. Ruling his confession was involuntary. Now, after nine years of incarceration, he may finally go free. Here's my Nightline co-anchor, Dan Harris. I grabbed her arm, put it on the side, and tied her up. This is 16-year-old Brendan Dassey confessing to murder. And then we brought her outside and shot her. The teenager from Wisconsin describing how he and his uncle Stephen Avery raped and murdered 25-year-old photographer Teresa Hallbach. But today, a stunning reversal. After spending nearly a decade behind bars, a federal judge overturned Dassey's conviction, ruling that the teen's confession was involuntary because investigators pushed him into it. Dassey's trial was featured in Netflix's true crime documentary sensation, Making a Murderer. The case sparked outrage among many viewers and Dassey's defense team, who said from the beginning that he was manipulated into confessing to a brutal crime he did not commit. A lawyer who starred in Making a Murderer tweeting today, Justice finally strikes. We're over the moon. Laura Nyrider, one of Dassey's lead attorneys and fiercest defenders. He's in shock. <laughs> he's grateful and he's just trying to process and understand what's happening. Come on, Brandon. All right. So, so if, if you look at that, and, and I mean, you see so many doc, doc, uh, documentaries, you, 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 you tra travel a lot and see all kinds of stuff. What do you think about that? I mean, is that, is that good for documentaries or what, what do you think about that? I mean, moving it into a, a much bigger realm? I mean, just so that I don't offend you, I mean, Making a Murderer is by far one of the, let's say, most impactful, but also in a very respective and I would say ethically uh, precise way. So, I mean, I'm not attacking making a murderer when I say that what has happened with true crime in, within the last five years in the long format where you actually follow cases and also very often unresolved cases, four, five, six years, is that you actually, as audiences, get involved in a way which is far beyond anything I've ever seen anywhere else. So you get what we call sofa activism, like hashtag free Adnan. You get big groups of uh, people asking Obama to free Stephen Avery. You get a kind of activism, which is, of course, let's say, hobby detectivism. I mean, it has nothing to do with professional knowledge about what, what this kind of case is about. And, uh, and I think there is, in that sense, there is, um, I don't want to call it, uh, there's an issue here where, where the people that do it, I mean, journalists and documentary filmmakers, really, really need to take care of the, let's say, in this case, victims 
because they follow them to a degree which is way beyond what you do when you do normal documentary filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the most important thing as a documentary filmmaker to work. I'm going to make a film about you, but I'm going to really let you know what it means to make you into a film. But these processes, it's impossible to tell Brendan or Stephen what's going to happen to them during these next four or five years. Yeah. And there is an issue here which I think is super crucial. Wait, what do you guys think about that? No, it's really interesting, right? I mean, you're exactly right. These are, this is a, such a new phenomenon, right? And for Brendan, right? Brendan was convicted in 2007. And for about the first eight years or so after that, he was forgotten. He was a forgotten person locked in some prison cell in rural Wisconsin, right? And then here comes Making a Murderer and shines a spotlight on Brendan and on Stephen Avery and on the people involved in the cases, the lawyers, on the victim's family, right? And, and becomes this phenomenon, I think, larger than anybody had expected. And everybody is still sort of grappling with that and trying to understand what's happened, uh, what's happened and how can we make this uh, as positive of a thing as possible. But, you know, for Brendan himself, Brendan, it's been enormously positive, right? I mean, he's gone from being this forgotten person to someone with friends, friends all over the world, right? He gets eight, 10, 12 letters a day still from people all over the globe who saw his story, who feel for him, and who just want to send him a line, drop him a line saying, you know what? We support you. You know, we believe in you. Keep your head high. Keep on fighting. We know it's going to happen for you. I can't tell you what that has meant to Brandon Dassey. It's, it's given him hope, right? It's given him hope, which has given us hope. But I also, I mean, I read an interview some, some years back with the first two lawyers, I don't remember their names, Steve's first two lawyers, and they said that if they had known what the presence of making a murderer would have done to the case, then they would never have agreed to take it on board. Because they basically believe, or I don't know, but at that time they said that this, I mean, because of the magnitude of the public interest, then it became politically so sensitive for the state to actually grant, I mean, you know much more about it, but it's also to say that you're dealing with something because the, the public attention and the civic engagement is so large that your responsibility as, I mean, not, not you, but the responsibility of the network and of the filmmakers is just on a whole different scale. Do you, do you think you have changed as lawyers because of Netflix? I mean, are, are you doing other stuff that you would have normally done? Or are you... you mean like coming to the Heartland Festival? <laughs> Exactly. But, uh, Push me about there. <laughs> Got you there. Are you doing your cases differently because of, of social media and you know that you can you know, activate people differently? Are, are you working differently? No. I mean, we, <laughs> Brendan is one of many clients. Right. Um, he probably is a client that demands um, you know, more attention on a regular basis than other clients, but um, we're continuing to fight these cases the same way on behalf of all of our clients. Um, there's a larger audience that is invested in Brendan's case, so Laura became a Twitter member just in the last year. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, and so we, we've had to engage in social media but I don't really consider that lawyering. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, that's true, right? We, we made a commitment, you know, to ourselves and to Brendan um, 
before season two began getting filmed, because then we kind of knew this is going to be big, yeah. to fight for him, to respect his privacy, his confidentiality, to do for him what we would do for any clients, you know, and, and not let the madness around the series affect our ability to, to fight for him. But in terms of, the, you know, what his story means and can mean on a broader level, right, the kinds of reforms that we can now advocate for, the kinds of people who want to learn more about the criminal justice system, maybe because they just sat down on their couch one night, turned on Netflix and got drawn into this story. You know, the movement that this has inspired for reform and changes in the law, changes in the way kids are questioned, that's incredible. And that's, you know, that's a huge, huge advantage of the spotlight that's been shown on this case. But it's also, I mean, can I just say one? Yeah. You, you've all listened to Serial? Do anybody know Serial? So the, a podcast? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There would be no making a murderer without Serial. In fact, yeah. it wasn't until Serial became a hit that these two filmmakers got anybody interested in their footage. But I'm curious to hear you because in Making a Murderer, it is the uh, defendant within the film, Kathleen and the two former, and you, that are somehow driving the narration. I mean, it's your work that drives the narration very much, and of course the, the families around. But in, in Serial, it's Sarah Keenick who is the driving private investigator, almost. Or, let's say, I mean, she insists very much also on being an amateur detective and not a professional police investigator. And, uh, and I mean, one could say that carrying that responsibility, because she's not a professional, is also saying, I mean, she might, because it goes on for so long, I mean, it's an amazing podcast, I'm not in, in a way trying to hit down on it, but because she goes into a field with so many question, unanswered questions, and normally you would hide your research, and then once you've, once you've done your research, you would come out with a result and say, I think that. But she uncovers that entire thin ice territory, so she also points in direction where somebody is not at all guilty, you know? And just the fact that you go there and mention your entire research process is a way of working that the police would not be working. They would, be not, they would not be public about that until they had something that they strongly believe in. And what do you think about, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think that, you know, when you tell a, a true crime story, you know, one of the dangers mm. is in, you know, feeling like you know every single answer about everything, right? This, this desire for certainty that the narrative of a true crime story can, can cause us all to feel. We want to know exactly what happened. I'm not going to rest until I figure this out. And believe me, I have felt that way about this case for years. I mean... The sleep I have lost thinking about this case is unbelievable, <laughs> right? Um, but you're right. I mean, life isn't like that. You know, life is messy. There are questions that we're never going to know precisely the answers to. And I think the way that Sarah did the Serial podcast uh, speaks to that, speaks to the reality here, which is we're just trying to figure out what happened as best as we can, mm. right? Um, there's some things that we can never know. I think one of the things that we, we, we were also talking about is, uh, a little earlier is that, you know, many of those shows coming up now are actually focusing on trying to be the next Making a Murder, right? And we were talking about there was just this week. Yeah, just, just in the last few days, When They See Us. When They See Us. Um, is a big, a, Netflix, that's, uh, yeah. a Netflix documentary about a, a Central Park uh, murder, right? It's, it's another very, very famous false confession case, a lot like Brendan's case, actually, from New York City. 
um, involving five kids who falsely confessed to the rape and attempted murder of a jogger in Central Park. It's an unbelievable um, project. Should be yeah. great. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. But, but that's not really trying to be the next making a murderer. That's a dramatization of events that have already occurred. It may be taking advantage of the false confession space that making a murderer cracked wide open. But there are other documentaries that are trying to be the next making a murderer. Usually, they start out as podcasts, right. then they become documentaries. Well, that's, I, I was just thinking about one of the things that I want to uh, ask all of you about is that because the way TV executives think is that if something works, we want more of that, right? That's, uh, that's how I, I can say that. That's how, that's how that, that works. So what kind of documentaries does not get made because everybody is focusing on na the next murder, the next murder, the next murder? What, what do you think about that? What, um, wait, just from a, I'm not representing a network or a television state, I never commission, but I can say on a personal note that I'm F-U-C-K-I-N-G, tired of women being the victims. I'm tired of women getting raped, women getting murdered, women get, be, being kidnapped, and I would so much want to see more true crime stories about structural economic crime, could be uh, money laundering, could be Comex files, it could be uh, what we in Danish call bandita i habita, meaning uh, that crime is not only low-life crime, crime is also yeah. men in suits, and there are many stories to tell there. So, I mean, I would hope that we would not keep on copying, not that I totally respect that you work for young people being falsely accused, I mean, that's coming, I mean, that's the most amazing project, but we need stories about not low life, but also high structural economic crime. So you're saying because of the success in podcasts and, and on streaming, we'll see there are so many true crimes also in the making mm -hmm. uh, that, that we kind of miss some of the other stories, some of the white collar crimes exactly. get, get, uh, get off the hook yeah. because of that. Yeah. Is that. And also if you see, I mean, right now in Denmark, and, and I don't want to completely bang on them, but right now one of the most listened to podcasts true crime podcast in Denmark is called Mørkeland and it's basically two young girls who meet around a coffee table and each of them bring a murder story and then they giggle and giggle and ooh I'm so excited to hear what did you find this time and, and it's basically just pure fascination with murder and crime and for me it's just like not okay I mean we are raised as kids that if we pass an accident we don't stop to look we pass just out of respect for what happened we don't need to go down we don't, have to, we don't have to follow our fascination with murder and crime and people's immense tragedies. We can also just pass it. And I think when true crime becomes pure fascination with crime, then I just have to say, fuck off. I mean, I'm tired of it, and there is so much, there is so much, no, yeah. really. What about? I think that's why it's so important, yeah. you know, I think that's why it's so important to find people who will tell this story in a responsible way, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's the, the most important thing, right? I mean, this is, at the end of the day, a story about a woman getting murdered and people being put in prison for the rest of their life, right? It's kind of, it's very, very heavy stuff, very serious stuff. Um, so that's, you know, it's absolutely crucial to find somebody who understands that and who will tell this story in a way that honors, you know, everybody and the tragedies involved. All right. Talking about uh, the next uh, big uh, true crime story, talking about that, uh, let's see what is uh, what is the next in Scandinavia. What is the big 
biggest new up and coming uh, true crime. You can just yeah, so uh, introduce that. Before coming, am I on? Yeah. Before coming, I was asked to bring a Danish clip uh, from a true crime series, and uh, and I uh, and I thought I wanted to bring something that is what I just asked for. I mean, a true crime series that looked into structural economic crime, and that was completely impossible to find. But then I found out that there is uh, right now a, a big, the biggest Scandinavian true crime series that is in the making right now. It's going to come out in March 2020. Uh, it's called Scandinavian Star. And for those of you who were not born in April 1990, Scandinavian Star was, uh, and also for you, was a, a ferry accident, a ferry going from Oslo to Frederikshavn. Uh, and a huge fire broke out and 139 people died under terrible, terrible, terrible circumstances uh, and is an unresolved murder case. And it is actually the biggest murder case in Scandinavia since World War II. And it's absurd that it's unresolved. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And uh, there's a Danish journalist called Lars Halsko who wrote a book about it two or three years ago. And him, together with the Danish documentary filmmaker called Michael Kro and the Danish scriptwriter who made The Bridge and other uh, series called Nicolas Schaffi, that group together right now is uh, making this six-series Scandinavian star project. Uh, yeah. And uh, they agreed that I could show a short clip. Yeah. Um, and, and the clip is, is uh, we should just say, say it's, it's, it's how you finance the thing, so it's, it's not finished at that time. Yeah. So it's just for the people who are putting money into documentaries, they, they see it like unfinished. So yeah, so it's basically it's just a small interview. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's a flavor of, of what to come. Yeah. And as I told you, it's uh, not translated and it's, it's actually in Norwegian. But it's Norwegian, you just, yeah. If you just look like, like you understand it, it would be really, really cool. Nobody uh, will understand Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, uh, let's see, it's a clip, uh, I think it's a clip 11. Let's see clip 11. Jeg får sånne frysninger på ryggen når jeg tenker på det i dag. Jeg satt altså i Riksarkivet og gråt når jeg leste de historiene om de menneskene som ble funnet på Skandinavien Star. Jeg husker blant annet en, en, en far som ble funnet bak et dusjforheng inne på kahytten med en hånd over hvert sitt lille barn og med håndkler rundt munnene og nesene sine. Der Der døde de, de tre. Og det, det grep mig så hardt, altså. Så sterkt, eh, at jeg, eh, når jeg gikk fra Riksarkivet den dagen, så skjønte jeg at det skal jeg nærmest være den, den, denne saken skal jeg finne ut av. Her har vi en mordsak, hvor en morder ikke er tømt. 159 mennesker var drept. Ingen tviler på at branden var påtent. And when we were saying it was coming out this uh, next year, right? In, in March yeah. 2020. Yeah. And I mean, it's a little hard to understand. And uh, But I think the, the important thing about this, I mean, I haven't seen the entire series, so of course I can't really praise it. But what I think is interesting 
formally and structurally is that they're going to look into the people that survived, into families that lost family members. So it's, I mean, so it of course has the emotionality of following people who were a part of a large-scale crime story, but it's also going to be uh, an investigative journalistic series that look into what was never resolved. Right. And, the, and the combination of these two tracks, I mean, this is, is in, it's, a, it's in a way a story about a, a very innocent Scandinavia, pre-Panama Papers, pre-money laundering, pre-Comex files, where police were just like, well, they, we're going to look at a, at a boat that caught fire, and they have no idea about the massive economic crime that lies behind the actual accident, or right. accident is not... Yeah, so I think it's, uh, in that sense, this is what I, I'm asking for, that let's get some of this instead of only having uh, women being murdered and uh, yeah. raped. And also because, I mean, I, th there might be people working for police here, but I think that it's about 40 people that get murdered in Denmark a year. I mean, it's not, of course, it's, it's terrible for the people who get murdered, but it's not like a big uh, societal structural problem. I mean, yeah. Right. If you're going to choose and say, if I can choose, I, I want to make... Uh, this is the next thing I want to make. Is that what, what kind of what, what case would you do? I mean, if, if you could you could call up Netflix and say this is what we want to do, what, what would that be? It's a really great it's a really great question. I mean, that's the thing, right? People look at Brendan's story and they think this is unique, right? He's the only one that this has happened to, and that's not the case. We represent so many kids, just like. Brendan, you know, we've been involved in the West Memphis 3 case, which involved a very similar teenager who falsely confessed, many other cases that are high profile in the United States and themselves have attracted media attention, documentary right. film attention, because these stories are so unbelievable and so that, powerful. That, that, that show, or your, that what you're talking about, is the HBO show uh, Paradise Lost, right? Yeah, par yeah, the Paradise Lost trilogy, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then Peter Jackson also made another film about it called The West of Memphis. Right. Um, but, you know, so you asked me which, which one of our, uh, our other clients we would pick. I mean, it's like, you know, trying to pick between your kids. They all deserve it. They're all innocent. Um, so let's, you know, let's get Netflix on the phone. Let's try this. <laughs> let's try it. Do you have any uh, any uh, any shows that you you think are specific? I think that that I like to tell stories that reflect what's going on in society at the time of the crime, mm -hmm. and we just finished representing a, a young man who um, was convicted of a murder in 1961. He was an African American boy who was convicted of I'm sorry killing his teacher in, in a public school in 1961. It was part of a generation of African-Americans who left the South and moved up places like Chicago for a better life. And when he got there, he was wrongfully convicted under the color of law. The legal system aimed to crush him instead of focusing on the true perpetrator, which we believe was a, a white male who was working in the school. To me, that's the kind of story I want to tell, is, right. is that people leave the South for a promised land that doesn't actually come true, um, and a justice system that is meant to be fair and impartial, but is not. Yeah, he had to wait 58 years to be exonerated. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So, so what, what you're also saying is that how can we make documentaries that, that, that does a little more than just the good story? 
right? The fascinating story, but, but actually changed things. And, and I think, what, how can we, you know, because it, it's obvious that you get a lot of, story, a lot, a lot of cases with wrongfully uh, con, uh, confessions. How, how, how is, I mean, how can the system change? I mean, is it, there must be something in the system, in the U.S. system, that, that makes it come again and again and again. I mean, what's Absolutely. So this is one of the, the benefits of, of making a murder, right? Right. Um, we've had opportunities to work really closely with police organizations, which is spectacular. Police who themselves watched the film and said, no one should be questioning a boy like Brendan this way. We need to change the way we question kids. We've been working with them to create new ways of questioning children with more protections so that we don't get future Brendan, Brendan Dassey's. Um, Steve, you've been working on other reforms in the States? So one of the great things about coming to this festival and speaking in the UK and around Europe is everywhere we go, we hear that never would have happened in our country. Brendan would have been interrogated with a parent or an appropriate adult by his side or even a lawyer by his side and he would have had greater protections. The police officers would not have been feeding him facts like they were in this process. Um, all of our interrogations are electronically recorded. And we are using those comments to, to push for reforms in the United States. And it's working. Oh, thank you, guys. It's working. In both California and Illinois, the state where we practice, Children under the age of 15 now who are charged in very serious crimes must be represented by legal counsel during police interrogations. And um, now 25 of our 50 states require electronic recording of interrogations, and Illinois was one of the first. So if we can make the legacy of making a murderer, the legacy of Brendan Dassey's case, positive change so that other Brendan Dassey's don't have to go through what he's gone through, then this was all worth it. Absolutely. We are, we're, we're quickly running out of time, and I think it's a great way of, 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 of ending this session, actually, because it means that uh, something more is coming out of it than just a, a TV show. So, again, thank you so much for for coming, and uh, thank you for coming as well. <laughs> uh, <it's laughs> and uh, and thank you very much for listening in, and and looking forward to seeing some of the next shows you are in, and see what's <laughs> what's going to happen. Uh, thank you so much. All right, thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have listened to a Heartland podcast. If you like what you just heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or even better tell your friends that you heard this. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.